you, worship team. Sometimes don't you find a song ministers to your soul more than a sermon? What's the answer to that? No, no, Paul, because you're just about ready to give your sermon is the right answer. But it is true. Thank you. You, you might say we spent the last three weeks singing a single song. It's the psalm we're going to read this morning, Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible, the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 456. It's a song written by King David 3,000 years ago. And if you've been with us, you know it breaks into three parts, the world, the word, and the way. The world, the word, and the way. As you get to know God through his world, the heavens declare. This is one of the reasons I love that we have windows in here. Just, you know, I know you're paying attention even if you're staring out the window sometimes. Just, you just like to see creation. It says something about God. It declares his glory. But we're here on Sunday mornings and you're in your own private time reading his word because the world's not enough to know God. There's an intimacy you can't know just by staring at a tree or a mountain or an ocean. And we get to know God through his word more intimately. And once you get to know God, then it, he begins to reshape your life, the way in which you live your life. And most of us have the same testimony in some sense. I was living a certain way. I was intersected by God. And then I began to live in a different way. He, he began to reshape the way I think about myself, the way I think about others, the way I think about the world. Interestingly, the first Christians were branded. Did you know that? Branded. Not physically branded. Uh, and I don't think they had this term back then like we have it now. But they had a brand. And the brand had a certain name to it. You know what it, it was called? The Way. Isn't that interesting? In, in the book of Acts 19, uh, Paul has come to teach the people about Christ, and uh, enough of them are following after Jesus that they're called the way. They're living in a different way than the culture is. And a disturbance in that town, as Paul writes, or the, the author of Acts writes, Luke, says, a disturbance in that town came along considering the people of the way. See, they lived in a very corrupt culture, and they couldn't get out of it, but they could live a different way. And so the people around them called them the way. That'd be a great brand for us. So this morning, I want us to read Psalm 19 and also the first two verses of Psalm 1. And I want to focus our attention on the way we stay on the way. Does that make sense? I think Davis gives us, David gives us some help on how to stay on the way. What's the way that you stay on the right way? So let's stand together as I read Psalm 19 and the first two verses of Psalm 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech, and night to night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. But there is no place where their voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out. Their voice goes out through all the earth in their words to the end of the world. 
in creation, God has set a tent for the sun, and it comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man who runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins or willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. One of the books that I read on my sabbaticals titled The Indifferent Stars Above. The Indifferent Stars Above. It's about the disastrous journey of the Donner Party. You know the Donner Party? I've seen them somewhere in your history books or television show. It's a group of about 90 people who were seeking a new way of life, a more prosperous way of life. And they weren't the only people seeking after this, but this particular group was led by a person whose last name was Donner. And in 1846, they loaded up their wagons and mostly walked. They couldn't get in the wagon. There was too much stuff. And walked from Missouri to California. Can you imagine that? Uh, So they loaded up their wagons. They got started a little late in the season for traveling, so they were in a hurry so they wouldn't get caught by snow, and they were hungry for prosperity. They were in a hurry, and they were hungry. And in their hurry and in their hunger, they made a fateful decision. They followed the dishonest advice of a guide. And the guide promised this, a shortcut. Mm. So here you are. You're in a hurry, and you're hungry, and some voice comes along and says, here's a shortcut. Boy, this is, this is today, is it not? This is pretty much the advice you get on Reels and TikTok. You just scroll through and then, hey, if you're in a hurry or you're hungry for something, here's the little way to do the thing that you want to get. And they decide to follow after this man who promised a shortcut. And the Donner party went the wrong way. Half of them died. And the only way for the other half to stay alive, you know this? I hate to say it, they had to eat the people who died. Now you might be wondering, why did you read that on your sabbatical? <laughs> and I'm wondering that right now too. 
but, but one voice calling out to a people in a hurry. One voice calling out to people looking for prosperity. Promising a shortcut leads to disaster. When we turn to the book of Psalms, the Psalms are largely songs you sing to stay on the way. We saw this just in the Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't go this way, but goes this way, that chooses this way. And the way you stay on the way is you meditate on God's word. There's lots of things that could distract you from that, but the way you stay on the way is clearly laid out in the Psalms. In Psalm 19, says, David says the same thing. And I would say in these last few verses, he provides two ways to stay on the way. And I'm going to use the words train and truth. The way to stay on the way is to train and to know the truth. So that's my two points this morning. First, to train. To stay on the way, you have to train your appetites. Let me just say that again. To stay on the way, you must train your appetites. And you train your appetites and desires for God's word. I'm sure you noticed David pointing out the two persuasive and powerful alternatives to God's word. You see this in verse 10. More desired, the the word of God is to be more desired, and here are the competitors, gold and honey. You might say honey and money. You might say physical pleasure, financial comfort. There's lots of competitors, but these two David picks out, and they seem to run through the Bible and probably run through your life, that, that physical pleasure, as good as it is, it's a great competitor, God's word. Financial comfort, financial stability, the power that comes with finances, it's a great competitor to God's word. These things have to be better, more desirable, even than the the best, the sweetest of honey or the finest of gold, David is saying. So let's look at each one. Honey represents any physical craving. Think about a hot biscuit with some butter and some honey. Mm. Maybe don't think about that right now. But, you know, it, there's something that it stirs up in you, and, and you have a desire for it. But what David is warning is, as great as that desire is, it can certainly, certainly turn quickly into a demand. I want something. I have to have something. And he knows that physical tendency for all of us for physical pleasure. He's not saying it's bad. He's just saying you've got, to, you've got to control it. You've got to train it. Otherwise, your appetites, your physical appetites will overwhelm your spiritual appetites. Consider just a few examples in the Bible how physical cravings led to disaster. I mean, we can start with Adam and Eve, can we not? I mean, the very first sin had to do with food it was pleasing to the eye it was something that that caught their attention for physical desire and that overwhelmed what god had said we see it right there in the beginning the story of jacob and esau esau the older brother he had the birthright he had the inheritance and what did he sell all of his inheritance for you remember a bowl of soup 
He came in hungry and tired. He was in a hurry to eat. And one bowl of soup, he gave away his whole history. The very first temptation for Jesus in the wilderness, you remember what it was? Turn these stones into, not gold, bread. A lot of parallels between Esau here and Jesus. Satan, again, seeing if Jesus could give away his heritage just for a loaf of bread because it happened before. Maybe it's going to happen again. David's not saying we shouldn't like honey or enjoy physical pleasure. It's just that he's saying you've got to train. You've got to train your appetite so God's word matters more or else we'll sell our own souls for some temporary satisfaction. If you want to have, if you want to stay on the way, if you want to have a meaningful relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, you've got to train your appetites. A lot of you will know this name, David Bowie. You know this guy? He's a famous British singer, songwriter. He died a few years back. And he, at some point in his career, he got addicted to drugs. And I was watching a little interview uh, after he'd gotten off his addiction and the interviewer asked him if he was ever tempted to get back on drugs. And this is what he said. No, because I have too much value in my relationships. Listen to what he said. You see, you can't have a real relationship with an addict because all they think about is the addiction. They're never thinking about you. See, when you've trained your appetites, it's what you start thinking about. And if you have an addiction to something, it's very hard to have a relationship with an addict. Because they can talk to you, they can be with you, but the whole time they're not really there, as David Bowie is saying. They're always thinking about the addiction, and even if you're standing right there, they're not really ever thinking about you. And David says, I, I don't want to go back to that. And this David is saying the same thing. Don't, don't go back to those physical appetites as the main thing. Don't get addicted to them. Get addicted to God's word. Honey. Second is money. Not only does God's word have to be more desirable than honey, it has to be more desirable than money. And we know this even from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, what does it say? That's where your heart's going to be. He's just saying your treasure creates a trail. And it does for everybody in here. It's not unique. Everyone has treasure. It might be a lot or a little, but that treasure, it creates a trail. And we can just go and follow the trail of your treasure, and we can find out what you value the most. No one, Jesus says, can serve two masters. You're going to hate one or the other, and you can't serve God and money. David knows, Jesus knows, you have to train what you treasure. You have to train what you treasure. Now say that with me. You've got to train what you treasure. And we're all doing it right now. You are training your appetites in some form or another. You're, you're training your treasures. You're making investments in some way, and that tells you what you value. There's a trail in everyone's life here. It's how you spend your treasure. 
And we have proof from the Bible from a man who chased physical pleasure and financial pleasures, and he found out he chose the wrong way. And the book of Ecclesiastes is like a map of how uh, not to go. And in case you thought winning the lottery was the answer to all your problems, he won the lottery and it was a disaster for him. So you don't need to try it. He's already told you all about it. And this is what he says. I've amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings. I acquired a harem. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. And what was his conclusion? He says it again and again. Vanity. It's like a chasing after the wind. I kept thinking one more was going to be enough. And you know what? I got it. And you know what I found out? It wasn't enough. Whether it's physical pleasure or financial pleasure, he's saying, hey, honey and money didn't work out. David's saying the same thing. Jesus is saying the same thing. It's all over the Bible. And so we have to train our appetites. So I want to pause here and just ask a few questions. Are you controlling your appetites? Or are they controlling you? You know, you can say, well, I'm, I'm really doing great, except for this one area. And that one area might crush your soul. Are you training what your treasure? Do you know what your treasure? I mean, what's the first thing you check in the morning? What's the last thing you check or think about at night? When you're driving along and not listening to anything, when you shower, what, what, what's, what are the thing or things that just constantly are rolling through your mind? If we could go and look at your money trail, what, what would it say about what road you're traveling? Do you feel like you're in a hurry? Do you feel like you're hungry for something? Are you apt to hear this one voice say, hey, here's a shortcut? If you're a parent or even a grandparent like I am, Deuteronomy 6, Moses teaching the people before he leaves, these words I've commanded you today, not just the Ten Commandments, but the law of God. They need to be on your heart. And this is what he says. You must teach them diligently to your children. And how do you do that? You talk of them when you sit in your house or you walk along the way. So parents or grandparents, you're, you're training your children. You are right now, every one of us, at whatever age, you're training them, hey, this is what I think is most valuable. And so my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you, to me, is to just as you go along the way, 
when you're just sitting in your house and things come up on a phone screen or a television screen or in the world events or, or money or any other kind of physical pleasure, you just say, hey, let's think about that in a, in a God-honoring way. How would God want us to think about it? And that just becomes a regular part of your discussion. And if you have a child who's five or six or seven or ten, you've got to get to them before a phone gets to them because they're going to get trained. They are going to get trained. There's an algorithm that feeds their hunger and, and yours. And here's the algorithm. Here's the antidote. Here's the desire. Here's the thing that we've got to hunger above all other hungers. It doesn't mean money is bad. It doesn't mean honey is bad. It means they've got to be underneath this. David's telling us. One way to stay on the way is to train your appetites for God's word. Train. Second point is truth. You stay on the way by understanding the truth about yourself and the truth about God. You stay on the way by understanding the truth about yourself and the truth about God. St. Augustine summed it up 1,700 years ago with his opening line in his prayer. Lord, let me know myself and let me know you. John Calvin followed it up a few hundred years later. Our wisdom consists mostly entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of ourselves. So we have to know the truth about ourselves, and we have to know the truth about God. If we don't know this, then it's going to be hard for us to stay on the way. And we see in verses 12 and 13, David knows the truth about himself. Who can discern his errors? He's now, the word of God is now reading him. When you look out in creation, you get to read about God. When you look in the word of God, it begins to read you. And what does he say? Who can discern his, his errors? What's the answer to that? Nobody. Nobody's able to see themselves clearly. So declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. First, verse 12, David knows he hides himself, his sin from himself. Do you know that about yourself? This is a critical piece. And you got to say it out loud. Maybe not right now. But, but you hide your sin from yourself, whether it's willful or ignorance or or you just don't have the eyes to see, there's stuff going on in your life that's hidden. And David knows it. I know there's stuff that's hidden. I can't see it for whatever reason. And so David humbly and wisely admits he has hidden faults. And for many of us, our sins that are most damaging to our souls are the sins that we don't see. Now, my guess is if you live, somewhat, live with someone, they see them. They're not that hidden from them. I thought about saying, look to someone in your family now and say, I see your hidden faults. But then I thought, okay, I don't want a calendar of family therapy in the next few weeks. But you, you know it, right? I mean, even if you don't know it about yourself, you know it about the person you live with. Hey, they have hidden faults. Well, I want you to know they see the same thing about you. You have hidden faults. You have to humbly just say, there's stuff I don't see about myself because I'm apt to have underlying hungers or hurries that are causing me to be susceptible to a 
a voice that would take me into a destructive way, Proverbs 16. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, what does it say? It leads to death. See, the Donner Party, they thought they were doing what was right. I mean, they really believed it. If you ask them when they make the wrong turn, they said, we're making the right turn. But they were making the wrong turn. They couldn't see it. They had hidden faults. Secondly, there's sin that David does see. It's presumptuous sin, or in the NIV it says willful sin. And we're all too familiar with this, are we not? I know this is wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway. I know this is going to be damaging, but I'm going to let my tongue just let loose. I know I shouldn't do this or be here. And I know God's not for it, but right now, just right now, I don't care. And just willfully march yourself into this. And notice the strong language uses, David used to describe this power. Let it not have dominion. What a strong word. Don't, don't let it completely cover my life. The, this word dominion is found in Genesis 4. When Cain and Abel, remember they, they bring an offering and uh, Cain gets angry at Abel, angry enough to kill him, and he, he does end up killing him. But before that happens, God comes to Cain and he says this, sin is crouching at your door. It longs to have you. And the imagery is it's stretching out its hand to grab you. The sin is stretching out its hand. It's, it's coming for you, Cain. I can see it right now. And then what does he say? Don't let it have dominion over you. Don't let it cover you up. Don't let it cause you to, to be somebody that you're not supposed to be. And I'm guessing David wrote Psalm 19 prior to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is his confession about his abuse of Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, her husband. And I wonder, when David goes back in his playlist and picks up Psalm 19, what he thinks about willful sin now. I mean, my guess is he was familiar with it in Psalm 19. But in Psalm 51, oh, he knows it. I abused a woman, and then in order to escape that abuse, I killed her husband. I completely let my physical desires overwhelm any desire I had for God. And it took a wrong turn and led to disaster. So David knows the truth about himself. If we don't know the truth about ourselves, it's going to be very hard to stay on the way. Mostly we're going to think too much of ourselves. We're not going to think we're in real trouble. Oh, we have some problems, but it's not a big deal. No, you've got big problems. David knows he has big problems. But here's the second thing he knows. He knows the truth about God. And this is the beauty of the gospel. First of all, verse 12, declare. Just These are the two words I want to end with. Declare and redeemer. Verse 12, verse 14. Declare me innocent. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we've got to know this down in our DNA, down in our spirit. We've got to know this about God in order to stay on the way. So I want you to listen carefully as we come to a close and we move towards the communion table. 
David knows, listen, he cannot become innocent and blameless. David knows he cannot become innocent and blameless. But he does know God can declare him innocent and blameless. That's a difference. He can't become innocent and blameless, but he can be declared innocent and blameless. And I wish I had more time for this, but listen to Romans 5. Since we have been declared righteous, something has been spoken over us, we have peace with God. God's declaration is not a change in our nature, it's a change in our standing. God's declarated, declared righteousness is not in us like he's cleaned us up so we can have a relationship. No, God's declared righteousness is for us. It's over us. You might say, might say God's declared righteousness, righteousness has dominion over our sin. It gets the last word in our lives. In other words, when, Jesus, when you know Jesus, he doesn't give you a do-over. He declares you righteous once and for all. Now, I just want you to feel the impact of the good news of that. Because I'm afraid there might be a lot of people in Christian circles who think, I gave my life to Christ, I'm getting a do-over. You're not getting a do-over. Praise God you're not getting a do-over. Why? Because then you've got to say the sinner's prayer every morning when you wake up. Because you keep messing it up. You've got to give your life to Christ over and over again. You've got to get baptized over and over again because the do-over doesn't seem to stick. It's not a do-over. It's a declaration. And that's good news. Something has been declared over you. And no, what, no matter what else is happening in your life, this is over all things. There's a declaration that God now looks at you and says, I'm declaring you, Paul Phillips, innocent and blameless. Paul Phillips knows he's not innocent and blameless. And if God says, I'm giving you another chance, Paul, that's not good news. He's declaring something. This sets us free. Knowing God's declared righteousness frees us from worrying that our next sin is the last one God will tolerate before he kicks us out of heaven. God's grace doesn't automatically change our behavior. All of us know this. It does automatically change our standing. That's the good news. So yes, get, get worried about your behavior. Work on your behavior. Cry out to God about your behavior. But you're not losing your salvation. You've been declared by God Almighty from before the beginning of time to be his son or daughter. That sets you free. So when you meet Christ, chains come off. If you ever meet Christ and feel like chains are coming on, you, you don't know Jesus. Chains come off. And he sets you free because you've been declared innocent and blameless. I wish I could say it better than that. That's the best I could do. And David ends with this one word that he knows, I know I need a redeemer. There's a price to be paid. I can't pay it. And so a redeemer is somebody who buys back. And David could only see in part 
what we see in full. That Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. And the reason God can declare us innocent and blameless is because he shifted all the punishment for our sin onto his son. And now all those who trust in him, who say, God, I, I desperately need your help. I have hungers. I have hurries that have caused me to take the wrong way over and over again. I can't seem to get away from myself so often. Can you, can you come in and help me? And God says, yes, I'm going to declare you innocent because of my son. So have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you felt chains come off? And a freedom, a freedom to work hard against not sinning, but not chains on like every time I sin, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. No, that's not freedom. That's not the gospel. You and I have been declared righteous and so today as we come forward, the table's open for anyone who said, I, I'm, I need that. I've got to have that. I'm trusting in Christ for that. And just as you walk forward, just think, I'm walking in this way. And maybe the Lord will bring something to mind. And Paul, or you insert your name, let's not walk that way anymore.